One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a conversion therapy camp here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Iscove. And with us today is Lola <laughs> Kelly, wearing a shirt. Lola. <laughs> amazing. It's actress, an amazing shirt. Director, producer, writer. writer. Yeah. Um, Multi hyphen. Former guest uh, came yeah. on to do Angela's Ashes. This is a little different obviously, than Angela's Ashes. Yeah, I was gonna say, obviously she, ha- she has a bit of a lane she likes to stay in. Um, today we're oh, man, <laughs> man, is that not true? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> today, today we're doing uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, um, which is uh, an, an amazing movie. Interestingly enough, uh, it is a little cuspy for us in terms of um, 99. This movie... Yes, wasn't indeed, actually indeed. released in America until I believe 2000, but it was released in film July of 2000. Yeah. Per the rules of this podcast, if it's an American film, it is when its world premiere happened, and that was in 1999. <laughs> so it made it. So uh, yep. Lola, welcome it, back to the podcast. Thank you for thank coming. Thank you for being so enthusiastic about this movie. What uh, what's going on with you? How's your pandemic? <laughs> My pandemic is pretty okay, you know. I'm alive and healthy, which is all I can ask for. My my relatives are alive and healthy, so or at least yeah. Um but it's it's crazy. This this is a weird weird time in history. Um so yeah. To say the least, it is but, a, it is a strange time. Yeah, I'm, I'm I want to start watching new, lots of movies. So I was gonna, you know, it's interesting because I want to start a new feature on the podcast without asking you, Phil. And my my new feature that I like to start is with our guests. 
Um, what have you watched during quarantine that you really love? That you've never um, seen before? TV, this movies, is, music videos? This is so, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not making this up, but I think I've seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire maybe 15 times. <laughs> oh, appropriate. Queer appropriate. cinema. Very All appropriate. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just so perfect. And mm-hmm. it's also it's also about isolation, you know, and it makes isolation so sexy. And masks, um, too. They wear masks a lot of yeah, that. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, I just can't stop watching it. It just fills me with all of the good feelings. I saw a few, and I keep also, I've been deep diving into queer cinema and cause I'm writing a queer film and I keep coming back to portrait of a lady on fire as like a palate cleanser because mm-hmm. there's just like, yeah, uh, there's so many that just don't nail the landing. Um, so I won't talk trash on the films that I've seen that <laughs> have required a, a, so many viewings of portrait of a lady on fire, but, but yeah. I, you know, t- to that point, I think it's interesting how, this film was received back in 99 and 2000 and how by critics, maybe more specifically than, than, uh, than audiences, but like they didn't really know what to make of this at the time. Like, I think that it just sort of, which is again, why I think it's, it's so groundbreaking and, and so great, but um, yeah, I mean, what, what, so you, you saw this in 99, correct? Like you saw this around the time that it came out, correct? I no? don't know if I saw it in 99 or 2000, but I saw it, Right. I might have seen it at a festival. My mom was a cinema professor. Um, So I had weird access to indie movies and all sorts of stuff. So I might have seen it. I remember who I saw it with. I saw it with two of my friends. um, Mm -hmm. And I I saw it in like the West Side Pavilion, like indie movie theater. Um, And I like have such a distinct memory of like being in that theater with these teenagers who immediately like within the opening sequence just like laughed out loud and pointed at me when it they they talk about like her being a vegetarian <laughs> and having like flowers on her pillows that are very uh-huh. vaginal and like like her bedroom yeah. was just like my bedroom yeah. and like the the two people I was with just like completely just like pointed at me and laughed out loud. <laughs> um, but but I, I yeah. think that, I think that at the time it felt like, and I, and I unfortunately uh, would, would clump myself in with this as well. I didn't see this in 99. And I think a lot of people dismissed this film or clumped it in with your, your John Waters or your Greg Araki, you know, or, or, or various filmmakers like that, um, that felt, I don't know, very sort of theatrical, very kind of heightened um, and I think that some people, myself included at the time, didn't really know what to do with that. Now I look at this film and I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's incredibly well done, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very sort of, it's a very in your face movie. Yeah. Certainly. And some, and some people don't, don't love that, I guess just, but you know, yeah. Um, Jamie Babbitt talked about that. I remember even like back then, about the sort of reclaiming of camp for mm-hmm. for female yeah. filmmakers and i it, yeah like i think that john waters is uh, i mean he was my favorite so going into that movie i already was like oh i'm on board as soon as the opening like that scene where like everybody's in brown and like she's in pink and it's just like all of that really on the nose bright camp stuff felt 
kind of John Waters, but like there's a cynicism to John Waters movies, which I love, but like mm-hmm. there's a, there's such a femme quality to this. That's also kind of lovely and romantic mm-hmm. that I had never seen before. And I think that it was something that like a very small demographic was like craving. I was in that demo, but sure. nobody, at least that I know of, no one had seen that pairing of just like aggressive camp and sure, sure. just a rom-com that's yeah. kind of like lovely. And I think well, that it made it <clears throat> strange categorically to a lot of critics. Totally. But to its, you know, to its great credit, the, the only thing that this movie takes seriously is the love story between yes. the two central characters. The movie yes. slows down when you're with them. The uh, the score changes. The way it's shot has changed. You have a lot of close-ups and inserts on lips and faces and hands and thighs and things like that. It's a lot of soft focus shots shot at night. Um, it really it really does. I don't know. As the you know, pretty straight guy, not the straightest. Um, <laughs> Are you bisexual too? I'm not. No, I'm not bisexual. I just. Uh, <laughs> I I I just I just love camp, um, yeah. but but uh, as a pretty straight guy, it really did feel like I had the the most cursory understanding of what the lesbian experience is for a teenager who's just finding herself. Because on one hand, it's this kind of not necessarily lesbian; it's really really more queer experience. It's this almost cornucopia of different ideas and worlds that come together, all these things that are marginalized and not accepted by society, but also something very sweet, pure, and real in the middle that you can't get anywhere else, certainly not from, you know, that dopey boyfriend back home. So I thought it was, I really, really love it. He's so gross. The kissing is so gross. He does such a, I think Jamie Babbitt did an amazing job of directing that, that like yeah. heterosexual makeout scene to be like the most disgusting in the car. Oh, it's, yeah. it's so gross. And even like when he sees her at her locker and he starts like sticking his tongue down her throat just in the hallways too. Yeah. There's, there's two JB Babbitt quotes that I want to read really quickly that, that uh, piggyback on what you were saying, uh, Lola about, she said, um, if I were writing a paper about it, I'd say it's feminization of the camp aesthetic, bringing emotion to something that is hyper realized. She also said that some people say that I'm trying to be John Waters, but the film doesn't have that bite. And I don't want it to have that bite. John Waters hates romantic comedies. He thinks they're cheesy. But there's a certain part of me that is cheesy. I'm a small town girl when it comes to relationships. And I wanted to tell a conventionally romantic story. And I think that that, um, to both your points, the the romance between um, between Megan and and um, uh, oh, my God, why am Graham. I forgetting? Graham, sorry, of course, mm-hmm. um, is is just really beautiful. Like not to say just, but it is so beautiful uh, and it's so pure and it's so uh, overtly romantic that it, you know, it kind of bucks everything around it. Cause everything around it is, is kind of, you know, very heightened, very surreal. And then at the heart of this thing is this just giant beating heart of these two people that are uh, so adorable together and romantic together. It, it's just, it's, yeah, I, I, it really made the whole thing um, really come to life for me. I think there's moments where it takes self-acceptance seriously, like with Dante Vasco's character, um, once they run into each other again. And I think those are kind of lovely. But for the most part, yeah, it, it, it lampoons 
everything, including queer culture, which was something I really liked that it satirized as well. Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I think Jamie Babbitt, Jamie Babbitt's response to you sort of saying that you're kind of straight because you like camp would be like, you get to be straight and also like camp, like that's okay. And like, that's kind of what she's challenging with this film is this notion also about gender roles, like Jan's character, obviously like Mm -hmm. that you can be like a softball playing mask person who's a woman who's straight. And like there's, there were so many lines in queer culture in the late nineties that I think she challenges as well as like, obviously she's primarily like completely lampooning heteronormative culture and how toxic it is. But like, yeah, I think that there's just, she, is just making fun of so much, uh, so, so concisely. And then at the center of it is this beautiful, sincere love story. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I obviously had a very similar takeaway. I was, I was really just taken with how, um, it doesn't believe in labels, you know, this idea that like you are one thing even just like later in the film when uh, Megan is talking to, uh, forgive me, the two male characters when she's living with those guys and she's talking about, you know, how do I become a stereotypical lesbian? And they're like, why do you need to become that? Like, you can become your version of a lesbian. Like, it, it's 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 really yeah. it's really wonderful that the film just doesn't believe in any sort of, the you know, getting rid of any rigidity when it comes to the way that you perceive yourself, the way you perceive others, that everyone is who they are. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. That moment I sobbed like that movie. The first time I saw that movie, I was just completely like in tears, either laughing or just like seeing myself on screen or feeling something like acceptance on screen for the first time in my life. And it was just such a, like, I I found it so funny, but then it would have moments like that where I was, and just to clarify, I'm, I'm bisexual and like, I'm also five foot two and like tiny, (laughs) like, and femme, like I appear femme. So I think like, for me, I was always like, sort of put in this box of like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't gay enough <laughs> to, to like, anytime I would like try to put my toe in that water, I was just sort of like, like, what are you doing here? Like, mm-hmm. um, so seeing that, especially that speech that that lovely couple gives to her where, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, where she gets to, to be herself. And that's so radical. That's so lovely. I, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, um, as we do this podcast, there are certain films that I feel, uh, are, are obvious touchstones, if you will, certain movies that I'm sure Kenny feels, you know, where it's like, these are the movies that people love, or these are the movies that people have an affinity for. Um, and this is a film that a lot of people, um, have talked to me about and, and, and have said how important it was to them and how, how much of a sort of, a, a a movie that made them feel comfortable to come out or, or, or made them feel like um, it's just, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's not necessarily a film that I would have made that association with. And it, obviously as a straight person, perhaps that's why, but also because at the time this, this really wasn't a particularly big movie. Um, it did, you know, it, it, it started to, it had a lot of a, I don't want to say a cult following, but it had a lot of video following. It really grew in its esteem over the years. But I feel like in its 
release, it didn't have sort of the 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 uh, you know the lightning rod that it seems to have now. You know, I, I was reading this interview with Natasha Leone, and she was talking about. There's this quote here where she said, "I remember these girls coming up to us after the screening at Sundance. They were crying. They were saying they'd never seen a movie like this, and it was completely life changing experience for them. And 20 years later, Clea and I continue to have the privilege of that very humbling experience on people. That this was something that was something that stuck in my mind. That it was actually helping people, making them feel less alone in this world. Was just a huge thing for a film to do, and. It's it's just it's 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 a really powerful thing, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that, and perhaps this is is uh, I'm I'm painting with too broad a brush, but it feels like comedies don't always have the same power. People have this association that the dramas are the things that help people through this stuff, and comedies maybe not as much. I don't know if you if you see it the same way, but I, I it's it's just. I think it's just this unfortunate thing that like comedies aren't quote unquote as important as dramas. And I think that this movie being so open and so sort of full hearted, I think makes it a more important movie than a lot of dramas. Yeah. I wish that comedies didn't get, ha- yeah. I, I've, I've been a long, I feel like you've heard this rant of mine, Phil, where I just, yes. I'm such a proponent of comedy and I think it is a much harder genre to nail. And I think it is I agree. so vital. That, and, and like, I, I think that. that's why i went to drama it's (laughs) it's so it's such it's so easy to make drama um but like yeah it's it's like a cakewalk but like the lubricant of comedy i feel like the trojan horse of like letting people in with a laugh or something familiar i think horror does the same thing of just like Mm -hmm. here is this thing that's pop that's like comfortable to you and like I'm going to draw you in with that and like then radicalize you. I think it, this movie did that so, so well. Um, and I think that a lot of my, at least at the time, a lot of granted, I was in a sort of like bubble. I was living in Los Angeles. So I think I maybe didn't have the experience that like everybody had, but a lot of my straight or friends, <laughs> my straight friends um, <laughs> who saw it, well, it's complicated because some of them ended up kind of coming out as queer after seeing this movie. But some of the really like just straight people who saw this, like were able to really engage and and, like learn a lot (laughs) by, by seeing this and laughing and being drawn in by the comedy of it. Um, Yeah. Love to love to throw them out. So what I'm trying to kind of, get get my head around what we're talking about is it this doesn't it, it's it's kind of interesting that the metatextual um reading of this movie also it can be applied to this movie right this idea that you don't have to be one thing I think is why people had a hard time with this movie. And I think this might be what we're kind of bumping up against in this conversation. I don't really think this movie is best, best classified as a comedy. I, that doesn't feel right to me. And I don't really think it's best qualified as anything except maybe queer cinema. I think it's now, a rom-com. Well, it, could be whatever you want it to be, right? Like if you need to put it in a box. But I think that's the point I'm making is you don't need to put it in a box. 
right? Mm. You don't need you, you. I think that's the point of the movie that things don't have to fit in the box, and I think that's what's that that's what we're working with here. Now, what I'm I'm kind of it's not that I'm grappling with it. I'm kind of recognizing the power of the movie in the moment. In that, when you look at queer cinema and queer is such a catch-all term encompasses basically everything outside of the mainstream in terms of gender and uh, sexual identity, but beyond even that, right? So you have trans cinema, and we actually are going to be talking about a movie with prominent trans character later, and you have gay cinema and you have lesbian cinema and you have bisexual cinema and you have things that encompass all of these things together. And then you have kind of high camp, which isn't even necessarily about gay characters. Like we watched Drop Dead Gorgeous and Jawbreaker, both of which are like very gay friendly movies that aren't about gay people, right? That are lauded and loved. You have you have you have gay icons that weren't playing gay characters. You have you know Judy Garland's and the Liza Minnelli's of the world that aren't necessarily playing gay characters. They're just gay friendly. Sorry about my dog. So in the there's there's just something about right. this that I'm getting at, which is basically so much of queer cinema. I think lives on the periphery of queer life, if that makes sense, right? It's not getting directly at what it's like to be a young person coming out and have it not be a dark, and I don't think Love, Simon is a dark movie, but Love, Simon is a very serious movie when it comes down to it. So not having a you know a very serious coming out story. Um, this is... A very unusual movie. And when, what I said in the beginning, that it's, this really makes me feel like I have at least an entree into a better understanding of the experience of a young, in this instance, a young lesbian. It's because this feels like it was made from a place of lived experience more than almost any movie I, 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 can, I can think of. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean – I, I I totally hear you, and I, I I really agree with the idea that this movie doesn't fit in a box that d- doesn't have a, a sort of a quote unquote overt label. I mean, I think it is funny, but Not I, I want to say, say I want to say one more thing. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Just to just to back up what Lola was saying, like part of the reason why it doesn't fit in a box is because it does feel like a romantic comedy, but it's a queer romantic yeah. comedy, right? And yeah. there is no real reason why romantic comedies can't be between two characters of the same sex, of course. But that also does feel kind of radical in its own way. It's almost more radical to take something that, if it were about a heterosexual couple, would be kind of middle of the road. You know, mm-hmm. and then do something like John Waters does. Which well, is- I don't think it's middle of the road. I think that there's, like, the ending... Mm-hmm. And the lack of, I, I think the ending is radical, whether it's heterosexual or queer. Um, and the relationship and the the nature of it and how pure it is and how, how like truly like re- relationship goals it is. Mm-hmm. I had not seen that in any rom-com. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know we're sort of like jumping to the end and I, I, I just well, sort whatever of. Whatever it is. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll cut everything. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, like that last scene where she retains her love of cheer and uses it to like get her girl back and none of them, neither of them compromise their true self. Like there's no, there in so many rom-coms, there's this like makeover narrative of like, basically like make yourself pretty so that the boy likes you or like give up a part of yourself. Like don't be a dork, like don't be a nerd, but she's just like a cheerleader. But the way that she changes is by like loving herself and accepting herself and inviting someone to love her. And then that, that love is reciprocated and she loves like tr- she truly loves that person the way that mm-hmm. she is and loves that she's a cheerleader. She doesn't change at the end. And like, I think that that is actually something that hasn't been explored much. In no, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's funny as, as you were talking there, I was, I, I was just looking at just even the title, like, but I'm a cheerleader is in and of itself deconstructing the notion of what it means to be a cheerleader like that idea that you can't be that you can't be a cheerleader and be gay or that she can't be who she wants to be is is completely obviously blown up by the end of the movie like that that is sort of a a, a perfect encapsulation i think of of kenny's point and your point of that this that this movie is all about getting rid of labels. That it's about deconstructing your notions of what it means to be any of these things, um, which is I don't know. I think it's just really really exciting. And watching it, I really did find myself. First of all, I found myself thinking like, why the hell didn't I watch this in 1999? Um, but also, <laughs> I mean, truthfully, just being like, what, what like what was. Why didn't I see this movie? Like, what what was it that kept me away from this film? I mean, clearly, I saw most of these movies, so I, I can't really tell you why. But, um, but also, just I, really I, hit with. I yeah, didn't sorry, know what it was. I, I okay. honestly, I didn't even know what it was until we started this podcast. I had heard of it, and I didn't know one thing about it. Um, really? Un- I, until, I mean, yeah, until I we started, until we started looking into the movies in '99. Um, this was a this movie podcast. that. There were so I worked at as as our listeners know I worked at a, at a, a handful of video stores in Toronto and one of the ones that I worked at when I was younger um, had uh, had a had a girl who worked there who was gay uh, or bi and this was a movie she constantly put on in the video store like it was always <laughs> classic. on classic yeah right like it was always <laughs> on yeah and I just always and and the thing is like I never sat down to watch it, but like you know how video stores were back in the day it had all these t v screens, yeah, and it's such a visually arresting movie, yeah right? like it's just it's so in your face the production and I just, design is amazing like I, yeah it does it really is, and I just remember always having it on um and and this and this girl really loving it um but that's that was really my only association with the movie until I sat down to watch it the other day. On and I love that you know it's on the Criterion Channel right now until uh, until the end of July. But um, you know, and and uh, Clea and and uh, Natasha did a whole interview on their website, which we'll link to um, on our on our Twitter. Uh, but it, it's yeah, it's just it's 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 such an exciting, uh, fresh such a, a a specific movie and I, I i just i don't know really loved it yeah i it, it's such an i had such a visceral reaction to it when i saw it and and it was my favorite movie of the year obviously hugely personal 
for me, but um, it became that movie that I would like pl- obsessively play for people as a litmus test, <laughs> like, especially girls. Like if I wasn't sure <laughs> like <laughs> where they fell, I'd be like, hey, you want to come watch a movie? <laughs> and like, uh-huh. I would just put on, but I'm a cheerleader and just like watch their reactions. <laughs> but I think that there are so many, it is like, the de- it's definitively like a cult classic for queer people but especially i think female queer people and uh yeah i've heard like that bisexual girl who worked at your video store i've heard like so many stories about women just obsessively (laughs) playing that movie and almost like we're just like bible thumpers (laughs) for but i have you heard the good word of jamie babbitt (laughs) i want to i want to use that uh, awkward segue to talk about a couple of other things Okay. okay. One is the absence of religion. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I, I did find that interesting. Interesting. I I th- yeah. I think that's also more radical than uh that than I think it may seem. I think the intended audience of this movie probably had no love for uh for modern Christianity, and it would have been a little boring to turn your Bible thumping, um, you know, Southerners into the villains. Well, um, I, also, it's also, I would like to do it, for what it, well, I would like to actually say that it would be scary. Like, I think that it was a choice. To, I, I can't speak for Jamie Babbitt, but I do think that like for most queer people, religion is terrifying because it is the source of so much pain. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard to, retain the comedy if you really bring the monster into the movie and explicitly do so obviously like adam and eve are in it and there's all sorts of references to and there's the the place itself feels just so seeped in this sort of christian heteronormative culture but but they don't explicitly talk about religion i also think that it's more inclusive in that way like my friend who was queer and jewish like loved that it wasn't explicit because he felt like it it made it more inclusive and it wasn't just this like christian dogma explicitly so it sort of allowed him to paint whatever he wanted to paint onto that somewhat blank murky canvas yeah, there I, is a I, little bit of religion in the Jewish character, but it's Joel, pretty, yeah. Yeah, no, but, but not. I know what you're really, saying, like, though, Kenny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, you know, when you think of a convert, when you think of conversion therapy, yeah. uh, you know the kind. You of think stuff of Mike, Mike Pence, yeah. Th- yeah. So it's the kind of stuff Mike Pence wants to yeah. send everybody to. Those are exclusively yeah. Christian camps, right? Yes. Um, yeah. and to make this not, I think. I hear what you're saying, Lola. I also think it's a really strong creative choice. And I'm not saying you're not, but I think it's a really strong creative choice and a really radical choice because what it's doing now, it was a little triggering for me in, in, in a way because I've spent a good deal of time in group therapy. And I find group therapy to be something that when done right, with willing participants, you know, who are open uh, to be something that's extremely helpful. And what I took from this movie wasn't that they thought group therapy wasn't helpful. It was how 
easy it is for people in charge to ascribe mental illness to a group of people and use, in my opinion, legitimate therapeutic methods to make them feel like they have to change something that you don't actually have to change. It's very creepy and it's, it, it made, it's very, it's, it's, it's very creepy. And it, 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 I think it's a little bit of a call to the psychiatric community to be extremely responsible right. when, when dealing with patients yeah, and to not I, use these, not use these, these therapies on people who don't actually need help from these therapies. So it was the reason I say it was triggering was because I hope people don't walk away from this movie thinking legitimate therapeutic methods are being demonized. I don't think that's what was happening. I think it's, you know, it's people using good methods for bad reasons, which is very scary to me. Yeah. Um, her, Jamie Babbitt's mother actually yeah. ran a treatment program um, for drugs and alcohol for teens. Mm -hmm. And um, so she talks about mining that a lot. And I actually worked in those. I worked in sober livings and rehabs for years. Mm -hmm. I'm sober myself. And so it is it's such a murky, like, I totally understand where she was. I didn't in 99, but having watched it, like that was something in the reviewing of it recently where I was like, she really nails just how, like how troubling trying to help people who do not, who are not voluntarily there and how that can just be so rife. Um, and I, I hear what you're saying and, um, you know, it, with drug and alcohol stuff, it's, it's obviously like you're, you're trying to save kids from killing themselves from drugs mm -hmm. and alcohol. So it's, there's, there's so, such good intentions, but even in that world, there's so many people who can take advantage. There's so many horror stories of, I know, I of um, but then, you know, conversion therapy is even worse and there's just, I mean, just it's just the, yeah the it's, it is it's really um most evil I, t I totally hear you kenny the 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 weaponization of of group therapy um by uh yeah, quite frankly nefarious groups is uh yeah it's it's incredibly scary um but there i i there the the word nefarious no offense the word nefarious to me is a little misplaced i don't I'm speaking of conversion therapy. I'm speaking of, uh, no, of so that. No, so am I. I yeah. So yeah. am I. Okay. So am I. It's, it's more nuanced than that, right? Like people who run conversion therapy, therapy groups, and I think this was really well done in this movie, aren't like evil people trying to sterilize people because they don't want them to give birth or something like that. They think that what they're doing is the moral good. So sure, they think they're they doing God's be, will. Yeah. That matters, though. That matters. Yeah, like it yeah, matters yeah. that they're. It matters that bad people are using good techniques. Hundred um, percent. And it yeah. matters. Like that's that's what's like truly scary because then you get to a place where mm -hmm. people start saying, hypothetically, where people start saying group therapy is bad because they use it in conversion houses. Mm -hmm. That is dangerous. A but like it's so much more nuanced and interesting than that because like 
any kind of forced therapy is dangerous. You yeah. know, any kind. And that's and that was the second point I wanted to make about the movie, which I think is really interesting about it. But I've always been a little and, and Lola, you're definitely, you know, the person to answer this. I've always been a little uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, as a person who loves Broadway and mm-hmm. uh, Bob Fosse and Disney and all these things that are that 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 have been, you know, kind of labeled femme or labeled gay by our society. I've always been a little uncomfortable with people using the markers of homosexuality as a way to say you are gay and then have the movie uh, substantiate that. Now, the, the, the movie I always thought of that was a little irresponsible, that respect was in and out. Um, it always made me a little, it always made me a little uncomfortable that because this guy liked Julie, Judy Garland, uh, everyone in town thought he was gay and he was gay. Like that seems a little too simple to me. It may be a little, and, and again, Lola, I really want your take because Maybe I'm totally off base, but all the markers of lesbianism that her family saw, that she was a Melissa, Melissa Etheridge fan and that she liked George O'Keefe and that she um, was a vegetarian and wasn't <laughs> a great kisser, um, don't feel like – don't feel like those are – you know that, that makes up a case – uh, yeah. Or, and I think Jamie Babbitt is arguing that. Like, I think that it, there's a reason why all the straight people are the ones who are saying that, like, you know, two plus two equals four. Like, you they, like these they were things. Right. And therefore, right. They weren't right that, that those things. Well, okay. So it's very, that stuff is very murky. And I think it's, I think she, she takes it on really well. Um, but I think that there's a way in which at least I can only speak for myself, but like queer signifiers or like things that signify your sexuality to the world become something that, uh, a lot of queer people will adopt sometimes when you don't even like it just so that you can be part of this culture and feel a part of, and like, you know, feel at home in your skin and feel like, and just also like in the nineties, at least like for, I'll talk about myself. Like in the nineties, there was no dating apps for gay people. Like I, like there was, there was kind of like no way to tell the world that you were gay in a safe way other than just like walking up to people and hitting on them. And obviously that's super dangerous. So, so like, I, I love that Jamie Babbitt like has that room where it's like, you go to that house and it's like full of rainbows and like everything is fucking rainbows. And like, just like he's wearing like a rainbow, like, uh, like pajama set. And like, everything is just like, hi, I'm gay. And like, there's something like, so like funny, but also touching about it because like, I so like, I still see that with like young people who come out, but like it, especially in the nineties, like there was just this thing of like needing to signify to people like what you were so that you could find love, like so that you could find your people, like not even love, but just like find your community. Um, and uh, it, it, like queer culture is like you mentioned, like so amorphous that it includes stuff like Judy Garland. And I think like as we've progressed and like these were more open about talking about sexuality and we're more open about um, 
the, the, it not being so boxed, that's becoming less and less of a thing. But I will say that like, it was kind of crazy to see this and think about my experience as like a queer person in the nineties versus like 2020 and like people who are the same age coming out now and what their experience can be versus then. Like, like I, my coming out story was so murky. Like I came out and thought I was a lesbian actually after seeing this movie, legitimately, I was like, I'm a lesbian. (laughs) And I questioned like every attraction I'd ever had to men because of like all of these like sort of cultural touchstones Mm -hmm. and, and qualities about myself that I liked and like all of this stuff. And then my experience of like coming out into a very male dominated West Hollywood in the nineties, um, it was a very specific culture. So I'm not like criticizing the culture at large, but like I was going to like the Abbey as like in like, you know, early two thousands. And I feel like that was like that very specific part of the world was like sort of run by like the Regina Georges of like the male (laughs) population. And like, you did have to, like there was a sort of like rules and regulations, Mm -hmm. like, and I, I was just, I didn't fit into those boxes and like, I wasn't, I wasn't at all butch and I wasn't, I didn't have the qualifications. I didn't have my papers in order. (laughs) And, um, it, it was, it was just such a strange time uh, of just like a lot of pride and a lot of positivity. But then even within the queer community, there was a lot of sort of biases and, and rules that I think Jamie Babbitt totally went for mm-hmm. and satirized with so much love um, so and hard, challenged yeah. with so much love. Um, yeah. And I think with Jan is, is the, like the best example of that. Sure, like she's, sure, sure. She's, she's straight. She's yeah. like, I'm straight. And like, you don't get to tell me I'm gay. Yeah. And uh, I think we see that. And and I think that I love her for that. I love her for, for saying that if you like Judy Garland, that doesn't mean you're gay. The essentially. Rules, the rules and regulations thing is really interesting to me. Um, because I think I know why they exist. Or why they existed and why they still exist to some extent. Totally. Safety. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. it's when you're when you're a, when you're a persecuted minority, um, they kind of had no choice but to keep the circle pretty tight and make sure everyone that entered into it was a safe person. Um, right. You see this. You see this very much so now in trans culture, right? Um, which I think is, you know. <sighs> They're wildly persecuted right now, and I think a lot of trans people are very scared, and they're very, you know, protective of their community, and you know, with 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 great reason. But yeah, I think in the in the early two thousands, I think that's why those rules existed, and that must have been pretty hard. That must have been pretty hard to feel like you 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 may have found your spot, and yet the you know years of a patriarchal society that didn't have room for people that didn't fit the heteronormative ideal uh also was kind of closed off that must have been weird yeah and like like you said i think that there was a reason for that and i think it was protection and i think like i i spent a lot of my life um not feeling like queer enough to be to even really like claim that and i think like there was a part of me that was just like oh 
you know, I don't want to claim that identity because it takes away from other people. And, um, I think that I don't, I think that that's toxic and leads to erasure. Now I understand that like that, that was, that's not correct. And, um, bisexuals are absolutely part of the queer community, but I also get where some of that protective layer came from in the queer community because of exactly what you're talking about. And the, the, there's resources that are available to queer people um, that are limited. And I think like that you want to make sure that people aren't taking advantage of, of that grace and goodwill and all of that stuff. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I really do get it. I do feel like it's very interesting to, in the, in this era of this civil rights explosion that we're, we're seeing now, it's also interesting to look back on that era and think about how many white men, like in that niche that I was talking about. Um, and I, I know some of these guys now, I don't know all of them, but I, I can understand how, and I say this without judgment. Like I say this with a lot of like empathy because like being a white guy and like, you know, we're in, they say like white supremacy isn't a shark, it's the water and we're all in it. Like, I think that these guys were kids, you know, (laughs) like when I knew them, they were children and they grew up, they, they were born with the entitlement of a white dude, but were on the outside. And then they finally like enter into a community where they are allowed to be themselves. And like all of that sort of supremacy, I think did show up and it didn't affect me as much as like, I think that I have to also realize that I have a, like a a privilege, obviously as a white person. Like, I think that there was, there was a a fair amount of alienation of people of color and BIPOC people and trans people in that community. Um, but it's it's grown and changed so much mm-hmm. and it's it's so diverse and vibrant and beautiful now um and i think that's a testament to that culture and how it has fought for inclusivity and um but there's still shades of it you know like there was a pride parade this year that was turned into a blm protest and it was a I mean, it was, it was bad um, because the white organizers were like, we're going to do this as a protest for BLM, which is so well-intentioned. But then they, with their statements and everything, were just like, great, we've worked with the great police officers of West Hollywood. And like this whole statement was just so tone deaf. And like, it, it became so, so clear so quickly that there was, there's, it's just so, there's so much white run queer organizations that don't allow in black people. And, um, that still is a problem even within the queer community, um, now in 2020. Um, and yeah, it's almost a good thing that happened because these are those, it, it, it almost takes those kind of like big public screw ups to get yeah. people to realize that they're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and to, to your point, very well-intentioned people. Um, right. But, but, you know, that's the, that's the whole road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's a real thing um, to me. And I think we've all kind of 
experience that to some extent that good intentions aren't enough and that even over the course of this podcast uh i can't speak to the queer experience all i could do is all i can do is tell you what i have observed from the outside and i have you know plenty of queer people in my life um who I've spoken to and I care about deeply and I think I have some level of understanding, but like I'm for instance, I am, uh, let's put it, let's put it this way. I'm not less likely to write queer characters, but I am less likely to write queer characters without first doing a lot of research into that stuff. And the same thing goes with BIPOC ca- characters and the same thing, you know, goes with almost any character that, that doesn't represent me um, yeah. or isn't representative of me. And I think that's a very important thing moving forward as well. You know, I do think that there was this idea before in our community, the writing community, that you can write anything. You can do whatever you want. And you just can't. You know, you just can't sit down at your at your uh, computer and write a, you know, black trans character and think you know what you're talking about. So. It's it's interesting. I, I fully agree with you. And, and, and what's interesting is that that pisses off a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? That there's a yeah. lot of writers that, that really relish that idea of being able to write anything that they want because you, you still they can fe- just, just, you just, just do your fucking research. Just be, well, yeah, you, I, I, I agree. But I would also, I, I just, it, it's interesting how, um, some people take umbrage with that, I guess is what I'm getting at. There was a movie this year called Waves mm-hmm. that was uh, about a black family that was written and directed by a white guy that, as far as I know, at least speaking to black friends, um, did an incredible job of depicting an, an American middle-class black family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible, you know, it's possible just yeah, it's I mean, uh, very, uh, very, very fucking hard. I saw um, recently. I watched uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was also written and directed by uh, mm-hmm. a, a white filmmaker. Um, and I'm not. It's it's certainly possible. I, I think that. Uh, but but to your point, um, you got to do the work. You know what I mean? And I, I think you have to show the respect that's necessary to whatever the demographic is that you're speaking of. If you're not a part of it yourself, and and or at least you know. And yeah, I, but we I, also I, have to pay BIPOC people yeah. for that work. I think, like, I, and, and the ideal way. is obviously yeah. like we we hire more BIPOC Absolutely. writers I, I was, and directors. Yeah. And, yeah, I certainly wasn't um, suggesting otherwise. No, sure. but that, the, the other thing I was going to say right after that was, yes, you hire people, of course. You also donate. Like you can't play. In, you can't play in other people's playgrounds and 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 uh, and not give them what they deserve. Yeah. yeah, well you you can't yeah. you you can't profit off of other people's cultures without donating mm-hmm. to those cultures as well. You have to 100%. Have substantial donation. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, it's interesting what you guys are bringing up. I like that's I'm having trouble like even processing enough to uh respond fully to it, but I, I like the favorite definitely came up in my mind just as I can I can't speak to the yeah. BIPOC experience, but I can speak as a queer woman. And the favorite was an interesting one for me because like I had just seen 
a queer representation, like a, a female queer director, and I really don't want to name it because I don't like to, don't. Yeah, <laughs> to, to yeah, shit yeah. on. But I, it, it like left me like so cold. And it was primarily because they cast a very straight actress who is just like, so straight <laughs> and there was just no chemistry in this queer film and i was just so like deflated by it um mm-hmm. uh because it's so exciting when you when you get to see a queer film um so so i had just seen that and then i i saw the favorite like shortly thereafter and i thought that it was so like i saw so much of the toxicity of those types of relationships like strangely accurately portrayed. Um, Like I thought it was bizarrely accurate at times. So it it certainly can happen. Um, It wasn't a positive (laughs) portrayal of queer culture, but it was like in some ways I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I've (laughs) definitely been in toxic relationships with women that kind of look like this. Um, Um. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So... I am going to read the synopsis of But I'm a Cheerleader for the people who have not seen it. Um, Megan, played by Natasha Leone, considers herself a typical American girl. She excels in school and cheerleading. She has a handsome football-playing boyfriend, even though she isn't crazy about him. So she's stunned when her parents decide she's gay and send her to True Directions, a boot camp meant to alter her sexual orientation. While there, Megan meets a rebellious and unashamed teen lesbian, Graham, played by Clea Duvall. Though Megan still feels confused, she starts to have feelings for Graham. Uh, the story is by Jamie Babbitt, screenplay by Brian Wayne Peterson, and it was directed by Jamie Babbitt as well. Uh, but I'm a Cheerleader opened at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 12th, 1999. Uh, it had a limited release on July 7th, 2000. It would go on to make $2.6 million on a $1 million budget. Uh, but I'm a Cheerleader has 39% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 74% from audiences. Um, what was the critic number? 30 39. Unbelievable. That's what? Yeah. Y'all are this is high. what I mean, which is that at the time, this movie was just not, people didn't get it. They That's put her fine. in a. They, Whatever. Fuck them. You fuck them 100%. <laughs> but like they put her in a pool with sort of with John Waters, who also, if we're being honest, was not a critical darling. Yeah. And, and it just sort of, they were like, oh, yeah, she's doing this. And just. But what's interesting is that, you know, you see the 74% from audiences, which just goes to show that, like, there were people that loved this movie. 
twice mm-hmm. as many people, in fact. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Um, Ebert's review, he gave it three out of four stars, uh, or two and a half, or I think it was three, sorry. He said, but I'm a cheerleader is not a great breakout comedy, but it's a kind of movie that might eventually become a regular on Midnight Cult Circuit. It feels like an amateur night version of itself, awkward, heartfelt, and sweet. Um, I want to read a little bit of, um, there was a really great piece in uh, Little White Lies that was done back in 2018 about this film that I want to read really quickly. Uh, J.B. Babbitt's satire is a powerful tool to deconstruct heteronormativity and conversion therapy's dangerous central premise that same-sex attraction is an illness that needs to be cured. This campy approach also informs the set design and saturated high-contrast cinematography, which combine to create a rich visual language reminiscent of John Waters. While the similarities to Waters' aesthetic would lead to negative critical feedback from the likes of Roger Ebert, colorful production design and costume are fundamental to Babbitt's critique. Uh, as she... Sorry. That was amazing. That was water. <laughs> That was that, was, that was the loudest water I've I, ever heard. I put it like below the table and I thought that would help, but it just have amplified. You, it. Have you guys been able to hear me drink my coffee this whole time? No. Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean sort of. It's um, iced coffee, that's why I was wondering, but yeah. Uh, as Babbitt explained in an interview with the US LGBT, LGBT newspaper, The Advocate, I wanted to make the world of the movie feel artificial and polyester. I think it's a great comment on the artificiality of gender identity. It's also Hell worth yeah. noting how Babbitt's style diverges from Waters taking brash camp sensibility and intrigue and integrating it with teen romantic comedy, one with a happy ending, no less. She champions a femme lesbian aesthetic on screen, filtering popular culture, female culture through a queer lens. She anticipates later cult lesbian films and strikes a blow against the femme visibility, invisibility that is, which still permeates the lesbian community and afflicts representation of lesbians in mainstream cinema. In the context of the late 90s, Babbitt boldly paved the way for greater LGBT representation in film despite mixed reviews and limited distribution but i'm a cheerleader has endured among the lgbt community due to its fervent rejection of heteronormativity and its celebration of queerness at each stage of production in the storyline the aesthetic the cast and the crew um i i think that it was obviously important to read something from recently to see how this film has grown in its esteem, how important this movie is in uh, queer cinema. Um, but it's interesting to see Ebert's review, which is positive, but also, you know, couched in this idea of, you know, patting it on the head and being like, you'll be a cute little cult movie in the future, which is, you know, patriotic. So I just looked up the Metacritic score of Boys mm-hmm. Don't Cry and it's sure. 86%. And I think that speaks to like kind of what we were talking about earlier and just how important dramas it, are. Well, not important, but just like how people like need gay people to be sad. <laughs> like for, for it to be like a serious movie. Yes, yes. And like, I think that honestly, like, gay people being happy was just something critics didn't know what to do with. Like, I think like a gay person dying was totally fine with them or a trans person dying. Um, and, uh, that was cool, like, because they're suffering. And like, I think that there's, there's a whole other psychological aspect to that that is dark to me. Um, but 
This is true. Uh, this is true for every marginalized community in America. Yeah, and this like is, the, is the slave narrative in in black cinema, and like how like that will definitely like get an Oscar. But like Poverty black narrative. people being happy is like never like critically acclaimed. <laughs> um, I mean, and yeah, yeah, it's a very specific kind of of trauma that it seems like high minded liberal audiences want to see, right. and. That's to me, you know, we've talked about it before, but that's why Moonlight is so revolutionary because <sighs> it's neither fish nor fowl, right? L- Moonlight yeah. is about trauma, but it's not about race trauma explicitly, right? The story of Moonlight getting I think made is about intersectional. Of course, necessarily so. Necessarily yeah. so, but you know, the the primary narrative is to me at least um about his self-acceptance coming out trauma associated with that. Yeah, but uh, doing so in the black community is has its own challenges and and the experience of that especially in a rural town I think is something that the movie explores. I'm going to disagree with you on that. I think that it is a specifically black queer film. We're saying different things. I'm 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 I should have I should have set it up a different way. The the narrative that I think white audiences or you know mainstream audiences have been comfortable with is the is the narrative that you were talking about the slave narrative that turned into a poverty narrative turned into a you know a, sure. a an underclass narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrative presented in Moonlight is not of that to me. It is certainly a black film. I'm no way saying it's not a black film. And the mm-hmm. brilliance of it is to me that it explores a, something very specific within the black community, but it is not your typical rising up from poverty sure. narrative okay, yeah. associated with these kind of prestige black movies you know whether you're talking about movies like 12 years a slave or whether you're talking about even shows like the wire where that's where that this is where we've we've, we've put our you know, this is where we put our focus when it comes to black cinema right with gay cinema it's the exact same thing you're talking about mm-hmm. there is this idea that that this that suffering is intrinsic to that narrative yeah. And suffering, suffering, right? At all times, like pain, sometimes physical pain, sometimes rape, things that are just horrible and horror that, mm-hmm. that really have a way of Trojan horsing into your brain this idea that being gay is dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Being gay is something that could eventually hurt you. And I don't think and that kill you. Mean, and kill you. In the case of boys don't don't cry, don't like cry being trans will kill you. I mean, like there is this idea that and and I don't think that, you know, look, I know that Kimberly Kimberly Pierce and Jonathan Demi, for instance, were not, you know, were were, were not malicious filmmakers in any sense. These people are, are these these people are, you know, and Kimberly Pierce is a, a gay icon and Jonathan Demi a well known ally, very, you know, wonderful human beings. Yeah. But it's hard to break out of these narratives. And I think that might be why, to your point, Lola, this is a unusual film. And this is probably very yeah. And like if I can get into like my own sort of like personal background going into this film, like I I I think I, so like early nineties, I, I hadn't faced a lot of homophobia. Um 
as a person because like I quote unquote, like passed, I think that there was a, a way in which like I could sort of get away with not getting bullied for it. But, um, I do feel like, so, but in the early nineties, I moved from Ireland to America or even before, oh yeah, Ireland to America, early nineties, I actually became like, I was like so obsessed with Americana and I like met these girls and they were, they were like the most American girls and they had a cheer squad and I joined the cheer squad and I was a legit cheerleader. And I felt like I am American. I am a girl. Like, look at me being a girl. I am attracted to boys only. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> like, meanwhile, like I was completely checking out all of That's the girls. Right. And um, I, yeah, but so what ended up happening with that group of friends is I do to this day, I have no idea where this came from, but these were like my best friends. We'd have sleepover parties all of the time. And I like got completely dropped by them because someone started a rumor that I was a lesbian witch. Um, and I was called into the principal's office. I kid you not. This was a Catholic school and sister Stella called me into the principal's office and asked me legitimately if I was practicing witchcraft and unsavory acts. (laughs) Um, and all of those cheer girls like stopped talking to me overnight. And at that point I did not, I was not. Like, it was this weird thing of, like, I have never kissed a girl. I have never, like, I had not admitted that to myself. But, like, somehow there was a reality there. There, Like, somehow I had been perceived. I wasn't into witchcraft at the time, but um, uh, should I tell this story or no? I mean, you yeah. could tell. I, I mean, listen, this is witchcraft. Why yeah. Yeah. Um, this is why we're here. But so like I out of homophobia, like I lost all of my friend groups like overnight. And that's like without even coming out. Yeah, I, I immediately was like, OK, this is dangerous to come out. There's a whole other thing. with which, Well, this is a actually queer story. So like I was there was this rumor that I was practicing witchcraft at the time. I was not at all. I had no idea. Like I had not seen the craft yet. <laughs> Later, I would watch it on repeat as pornography. Um, but, but, um, so, like, there was this rumor going around the schoolyard that I was a witch. And this girl came up to me who was, like, the hottest goth. She was just, like, so attractive. <laughs> and she, she came up to me and she was like, hey, I hear you're a witch do you want to cast some spells? And I was like, yes, I am a witch. I am a hundred percent a witch. Let's cast some motherfucking spells. (laughs) When do you want me to come over? (laughs) Um, So I ended up like having this like relationship with this girl and we got into like witchcraft just out of my like pure lust for her. Um, this is a good story. And this then, is a great story. <laughs> and then we did a binding spell on the cheerleader girls um, mm-hmm. together. We did watch the craft together, I think, at that point. Sure. Um, and weirdly, 
they all, I was also like, I strangely like became friends with Nikki Hilton because she went to that school and that's like a whole other side story. But (laughs) yeah, this is LA. I moved from, from Galway, Ireland to like LA and then, or no, maybe I had transferred from LA. I was back and forth between Ireland and LA a lot at that point. But like, so then, so like we did the binding spell and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, all of the cheer girls were like, we're really sorry. We were mean to you. And binding is like to make people nicer. And then it all ended up. So it worked, up. is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it worked. So witchcraft but, is real. Is what but I wasn't. I definitely wasn't allowed to be a lesbian. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, I definitely kept that under wraps. And then I will never forget. This was like such a formative memory. But I was in Ireland the next year, um, and I was on a bus. I was on a school bus, and I was uh, there was this, and this is Galway, which is like a very small town, super Catholic. In the mid '90s, like we were not friendly to gays. I mean, there and like women especially. Like, there's all sorts of history there. But um, at, now we're much more progressive. We recently had a gay Taoiseach, but like at the time, super homophobic. But I was on the bus, and there was these two women, and I remember I saw them, and like my whole body, my whole like 13 year old body, body, like head to toe horripilated like goosebumps i was like this is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen like these these two women were holding hands like and we're also like not big on pdas in ireland so even just seeing like people like affectionate and just like visibly in love was just so affecting i i was just like i want that and uh one of like the kids on the bus was like saw them and started screaming dyke at them. And like, and the whole bus full of kids like started like screaming all of this stuff, like about going to hell. And just like, just imagine like a car full of like all of that just hate. And I was just at the back of the bus and I remember like biting my lips so I wouldn't cry and walking home and I knew that I was also attracted to boys. So I think I like really was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm going to just like ignore that part as much as I can. But of course, like repression doesn't work. So that was kind of like my backstory going into coming back to high school. And oh, and then another experience I had was this girl called me a dyke in a locker room. Um, And I was not out and did not like admit that. And, but at that time I did have a secret girlfriend, <laughs> but like nobody knew about it. It was super top secret. And I was like, pretending I had like beard boyfriends and like, um, so there was like all, like every experience I had was either like in secret behind closed doors or it was like just very negative. And this is like in LA too. Yeah. And I had a queer theory, like cinema studies mom. And I had like such an accepting Like I had such an opportunity for it to be okay, but like that wasn't my experience. I had like just any time it would come up, it would just be scary. So then I went and saw this movie and also like I saw Boys Don't Cry and I even had like gender curiosity back then. And I was like, I don't always feel like a girl. Like, and I saw that and I was like, like, I'm going to die, you know? And I feel like all of those depictions of like, being queer, just being like very scary and dangerous yeah. in cinema was 
really had an effect on me because, and I didn't even realize it until I saw, but I'm a cheerleader because I realized how much relief I felt like the relief of laughing and feeling love and like feeling all of this stuff that I had craved was there. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even know I was hungry for this. I didn't even know I needed this so badly, but I did. I did need to see that like, it's okay. Not only is it okay, it can be beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's, it's a, it's just a, it's a really heartfelt movie. I I mean, it's, it's overflowing with um, love for all of its characters. Um, I want, I want to sort of just hit some of the, some of the plot points. We've hit a a bunch of them, but um, I really love the, the the credits at the beginning with the uh, April, March cover of chick habit. Oh my God. uh, So good. Which is so good. Um, Michelle Williams showing up as the head cheerleader up top, Um, you know, between this and Dick, uh, I just, I really hope she starts. I wish she did, did more comedies. Not that she's not a great she's dramatic so actress, but she's so fucking funny. She's so she's, funny. She's, funny. She's so great. Um, I'd love to see uh, her do more of those. Uh, Bud Court shows up playing Megan's dad. Basically, we meet Megan. She's at high school. She's dating this football player named Jared. They make out in the car, as we mentioned, and it's it's so uncomfortable and so gross, and and there's so much tongue going on. Um, but then I also was like, kissing is so weird. Like watching that scene, it just made me feel like kissing is such a strange thing. But that's the thing. But then you see the kissing later on and you're like, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, but it's like, kiss. it's kissing. so grotesque and funny. And like that she's like thinking of her, of all the the shots that it was. I thought also just like the opening sequence. Can we talk about yes, how she yes, just like reclaimed these like cheerleader movies which were so mm-hmm. popular back in the sure. 90s yeah. and uh she she made them through a female gaze in this like mm-hmm. she took this like very male gazy type of thing 100%. and yeah, yeah. turned it into this i i loved how she did that i know oh, it's so it's it's really i mean one of the bigger things and we've talked about this a little bit but you know it, it's a very specific aesthetic there's a vision to it um the 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 heightened quality of the world once she gets to true directions has a very like i actually my brain went more to tim burton than it did to john waters yeah, in a lot she of ways. actually lists him as a yeah. as a big influence edward scissorhands which i think is oh. so interesting like yeah. i yeah. was like yes and i was obsessed with that movie and i yeah. think like he's a weirdly like queer he's a queer icon just because of his otherness yes like he's that's the thing yeah it's the other because i'm all right so bud cord is not in this movie by accident and bud cord is best known for harold and maude and harold and maude is not about a gay couple but harold and maude is about an other Mm -hmm. type of couple and i think that's why he fits into this tapestry Mm -hmm. of kind of it's Othered cinema. I don't know how else to put it, uh, but yes, I For, yeah, sort of fr- people on the fringe, yeah. people that that feel like they don't fit in in some way or mm-hmm. another. Um, it's it's, and then I mean, obviously, then we have RuPaul who shows up as a quote unquote ex gay, a um, shirt that's as straight as gate gay. Or, I can't, sorry, I'm dyslexic <laughs> and bisexual. Straight is great. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he shows up and they do this sort of surprise intervention. Has anyone um, had a better 20 years than RuPaul? I, I don't, I don't <laughs> know, man. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I mean, basically, following this intervention, Megan is sent to to True Directions, um, which is this, as as we've said, a sort of a, a group therapy conversion camp, um, where she meets Mary Brown, played by Kathy Moriarty, who is running this place with her supposedly heterosexual son Rock, played by Eddie Cibrian, uh, perhaps yeah. one of Eddie Cibrian's better performances. I, I'm not I'm not the biggest Eddie Cibrian fan of the world, but he's really funny in this. I thought. Rock, um, rock, obviously not, you know, a, a yeah, obviously, yes, yes, yeah. obviously not a randomly named character, not randomly rock named. Hudson, yeah. Uh, we we then we we meet uh, Melanie Linsky playing Hillary Vandermuller, uh, with her with her uh, Australian accent, which is amazing, or her New Zealand accent. Um, yeah, and one of the first we, notes I took were more more roles for Melanie Linsky with her accent. Right? Oh my god, it's, it's she's such so a great good. accent. Oh, I love, and I love she was also like uh well known as sort of a queer icon because of her her breakout role, um, which is about a sort of uh, yeah, heavenly creatures. Yeah, yeah creatures toxically right. codependent. Do you think that was you thought that was slightly slightly uh, toxically codependent that they murdered Melody Linsky's mom? Repression with a is rock? dangerous. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah, be your true self. <laughs> be your true self, or someone might get murdered. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting. So we then meet uh, Graham Eaton, played by Clea Duvall, and and Natasha Leone in that interview talks about how Clea had this. Is it Clea? I think it's Clea, right? Yeah, or I think Clea. It's Clea. Clea. Um, how there, she had this James Dean esque kind of bravado about her. This 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 not bravado is the wrong word, but just this persona or what have you. Um, she's just so fucking cool. She's effortlessly cool from like the second you meet her. And uh, I wish that I mean Clay is now doing a lot of uh, a lot of writing and directing of her own. Um, so is but it's Leo. so is Natasha Leo. Um, but it's just interesting how from the second you see Graham. I was just like, oh, so Graham's the coolest person ever, and I, you know, who wouldn't want to date Graham? Like, she's mm-hmm. just awesome. Um, we're then introduced to sort of this five step program, which is kind of used as a as a framework or a narrative structure for the rest of the film of these sort of steps that they have to go through towards becoming not gay or whatever the whatever it is. Um, but the the first step is that uh, is that Megan has to admit her homosexuality to the group. Um. Which is an amazing scene. Natasha's amazing in it. Uh, just sort of this like emotional roller coaster that she goes through in the span of like two minutes as she sort of has to find herself uh, admitting to this thing. The drooling, however, is kind <laughs> of <laughs> it's something special. Um, it, it's, I it's amazing. loved the drooling. Yeah, the in drooling's the way, amazing. Yeah. Like, and only like a female queer director, I feel like would do that. Like, I feel like that was, yeah, it was distinct. Like, I feel like I had never seen a, a like romantic lead be allowed, a female romantic lead allowed, mm-hmm. be allowed to be gross, like, yeah. and human yeah. in that yeah. way. I thought it was like mind boggling. It's also, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, about Clea, what have you, but Natasha Leone's performance in this movie is fucking phenomenal so good i think it's it her is. best work and i i I, I don't that's not a knock at all oh 100 i i think that she she came into this and you know th- th- there's a lot of quotes from her talking about how um you know she was dating edward furlong at the type at the time she was wearing you know going to Marilyn manson concert 
um, and and she was you know she was much more in the sort of like goth punk rock kind of crowd. So for her, this idea of playing this like this like blonde haired you know girly cheerleader, girl. she saw it as like taking the piss out of out of a persona. Yeah, but. Uh, the the way that she brings such humanity and such depth to this character, yeah. which really could have been done uh, in a stereotypical way, is is really something special. I think she does nail that like really earnest, wide eyed sensibility, though, and that's why I think I'm so impressed by that performance. Is that she is so grounded and sardonic and and clever, like she's so witty as a like. Yeah. And she yeah. generally just like plays that type, but seeing her right. really take on this like very wide-eyed, like sweet person was just delightful. totally. I and th- it's interesting. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Ken. I think she's great too. It's not my favorite performance. I, I'm, I like. It's great, and I'm happy that she did it. And I'm happy that you know she showed she can do it. But I think what she does, particularly in Russian Doll, is just like so mesmerizing to me she's she like she's such a leading lady she's such a protagonist she's such a main character yeah um and i love like the i didn't think russian doll was all that great i just loved watching her the whole time you want to go on a journey with her she's is the so thing like no matter what she's in and yeah. real and just yeah. she's amazing in that show um, yeah. you know, and I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that, that Natasha Leone should just kind of be given, you know, the, the old Woody Allen treatment, give her, you know, whatever she wants, give her $5 yeah. million dollars and, and, and yeah. tell her to do something every year. And I would kill to see it. But it's uh, so yeah. interesting. Cause when you, when you put this performance in, uh, but I'm a cheerleader, which I do think is fantastic next to her performance in American pie in 99. And you're just like. Oh, so you completely wasted Natasha Leone in American Pie. <laughs> like she's just it's it, it, you know what I mean? She's she's playing such a, a truthfully what ultimately becomes sort of tropey for her, which is like the kind of sardonic weird best friend kind of bullshit which just wastes so much talent. I mean, you you can see that a she can hold a movie, she can be a leading uh, a leading role. Um and she's just there's so many gears to her. Which I think is just is is really is really incredible. Yeah, and I think um, that sort of speaks to that box thing we were talking about earlier, where it's mm-hmm. like I think people just decided she was a quote unquote tomboy. Like people just like really, and I love that Jamie Babbitt wasn't scared to just allow her to be a completely femme, like completely mm-hmm. off type. I think casting can be a bit. Uh, prohibitive to women in that totally. way of like, if mm-hmm. you don't fit like this particular mold, then you are automatically like this type. And I just love that departure for her yeah. and, and how she really took it on. I feel like without a lot of judgment, like I think that knowing oh, totally. that she is this Definitely. like sardonic type of person, like she just really inhabited that worldview totally. in a really lovely way. I totally agree. I think she also she so apparently she was not the first choice for the role. I don't know who the yeah, actor was, but there was someone that was like, "Oh, I can't do this for religious reasons." It seemed like, um, and Jamie in an interview didn't say who the actor was. I don't know if you were able to find out who it was, Lola, but um, she's always it, been tight lipped about that. Yeah, but the person like auditioned and like they got pretty far down the road, and then the person pulled the plug saying that she was too religious to do the movie. Um, and and from all intents for all intents purposes, it looks like Clea was the person that teed up Natasha. 
yeah. to to Jamie. Um, so I, I think that's really she interesting. Found the script I, in the back of Clea's car, which I love. Is the best. <laughs> it's so it's, good. Like Clea, so I guess, like helped cast the movie. <laughs> Basically, um, yeah. yeah. Like M- Melanie Linsky is friends with them as well. Like it, it yeah. just feels like. Um, it doesn't, yeah. So Lola and I talked about a character a little bit on text. <laughs> um, and this character shows up now at this point. Uh, Megan wakes up in the middle of the night to the sound of Sinead zapping herself under yeah. the sheets with a taser to inappropriate thoughts. I personally didn't hate the performance of Sinead, but I think Lola has thoughts. You're just going to throw me under the bus like that. Um, I just feel like Catherine Town was the only person who was miscast in this movie. I don't have any like feelings against her as like, I just felt like she was very, like she was on Buffy. Like she's just very WB and like, I didn't buy her as a goth. Like I thought that like, I was just sort of like, you really can't find like a goth queer girl in Hollywood in the 90s. Um, It just was like, what? Um, It just felt like a WB girl with like eyeliner on. And uh, of course, like Sinead is kind of loathsome as a character. So maybe she did an amazing job and that's why I hated her. (laughs) She's such a narc. Um, But uh, uh, yeah, I I was not. I will. I will. I do think that this. It does tap into something you were you were saying though, and I agree with you in one way, which is that um, I think that uh, across the board, I think it's very well cast. I think that everybody in the movie is quite good, brilliant, um, but yeah. when, brilliantly cast. But it's such a, a, a it's a high wire act of tone, right? <laughs> in terms of keeping these characters from from tipping into caricature. Right. And I think that to your point, it's possible. I didn't feel it as much, but you did anyway, which is completely justified and fair that Sinead tips into caricature, that she doesn't feel fully fleshed out. And perhaps it is uh, that Catherine just kind of goes a little too broadly with it or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, she is a loathsome character. I guess I just bought the aesthetic of. And and as I've said on, on, on previous podcasts, I wish I was a goth in high school. So I think I was just looking at Sinead and being like... You could still be a goth. Uh, I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. But I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but my point more than anything is that the Sinead character um, is intrinsic to the plot, right? She keeps things mm-hmm. moving and she... Uh, you know, she's the mustache twirling villain, for lack of a better way of putting it. And she's the third you know, spoke in the love triangle, too. She's she is. She is. Um, I um, don't know. Yeah. I didn't think much of it, but uh, <laughs> I'm probably, you know, I, I probably didn't, didn't put enough thought into it. She seems and, fine to me. Yeah. But I mean, she's also like in this cast of just people who I think were perfectly yeah. cast and just yeah. did an incredible job of that that high wire of just like being in a satire, but not going so broad that mm-hmm. they're unbelievable. So I think like, yeah, she was in this pool of, of people who were just perfect. And I feel like she was a little too broad and like not right for her role. I hear um, that. Yeah. Um, but maybe this- to your point, the mustache twirling villain, like can be a bit more broad. Um, so, you know, that's my personal preference. I felt like I wanted like a Feruza Balk type 
person in, in well, that Who doesn't role. always want Faruza mm. Balk? I mean, she's always great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Mary gets a phone call from her parents who check in, and we get this really great split-screen moment of her on the phone while Mary's playing an acoustic guitar in the oh, background. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. It's so, it's like, it's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, then we have step two, which is rediscovering their gender, their gender identity by performing stereotypical gender associated tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, I adore the vacuum scene. I fucking love the way it looks with these crazy, brightly colored plastic gloves and the vacuums and, and the raking is also and the amazing. raking. And like, it's just it's great. The stuff in the background, like there's just so much even production design that totally, has that totally. pattern in it, like the gun that just like looks like a dick oh, <laughs> on the boy side. It's even it's even more it's over amazing. The, top. the boy stuff <laughs> so is good. amazing. Yeah. And Ru- yeah. well, Paul yeah. can really throw a football. Like he worked very hard <laughs> at that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so Mike teaches the boys how to fix a car and like how Chop to like wood. drop wood. Chop wood. <laughs> Chop wood, that is sorry. Um yeah, Chop it's wood. it's really it's really, really funny. Um <laughs> then he specifically uh, three is not how to drop wood. Yes, that. Yes, yeah. Uh, step three is finding the root of their homosexuality through family therapy. So they do this. Megan has a sex dream about Graham, and then they do this sort of group therapy with family, uh, where we meet all the parents of a lot of these kids. Um, then we have the scene that got this an NC seventeen rating that had to be recut to get an R rating, which is um, Megan uh, has this sex dream and then sort of goes into Mary's office and starts to masturbate. Um, and the the shot, I guess, was sort of like a cowboy shot. So it was like a somewhat wider shot. Um, so you could actually see where her hand was. And that was what got it an NC-17 rating, which is truly absurd when you think of the things that got like NC-17. Pie. Like American Pie, yeah. uh, for instance. Like, you can fuck a pie. <laughs> Well, you can fuck you can pie. literally oh, fuck a pie. What? Don't masturbate. You know, I you know I don't, um, I don't but she for, as she does this pie, but you know, uh, she, fuck a pie. It's, like, it's not very it's not very very offensive. <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't suggesting it was offensive to me, but the uh, the MPAA had issues with yes. it. So, but but more importantly, perhaps, is that she sees Dolph and Clayton making out, and she screams at their discovery. Uh, so is- good, by the way. I felt that moment. I thought mm-hmm. was such a beautiful criticism of homophobia within gay people, say, and yeah. it's just this tiny moment. And I think, like, just in that tiny moment, she reveals so much about how inherent homophobia is, even if you're gay. Um, but yep. Yep. anyway. It's I fantastic. No, I, I, it's, it's a great moment. She panics, she screams, uh, mm-hmm. and then Dolph is made to leave. Like, he's kicked out of the, out of the, um, the camp. And Clayton is punished by being put in a tiny pink church slash doghouse in the, in the front yard. Yes. Did anyone feel like it was significant that the person of color was removed and the white person was not? I, I did. I did think of that. Yeah. yeah. 
they, they both yeah, have I mean, it's, bad it's... punishments. I think the solitary <laughs> confinement in the doghouse is pretty terrible. And I think he was in there for like a week. So. <laughs> it's like being put in the hole. Like, the white boy gets put in this like dollhouse to it's like yeah, be normalized into like white heteronormative society. And the person of color is like, no, you don't belong here. You failed. Get out of here! I I, I don't know. I, I, I found that you, I feel you, and I'm I'm kind of always on the lookout for that stuff. I think I may have been more uncomfortable if it was the other way around. Um, if you put I mean, Dolph either in, way, if you put Dolph in the doghouse for a week, it's it's a terrible punishment. Um, yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I just it that that didn't quite hit me that that's the, that same way. Um, but I I, I mean I thought that the the doghouse was obviously a terrible punishment and also made me laugh um mm-hmm. in, just in terms of the absurdity of of like the visuals of it um i also had that felt all very i could think of to me yeah yes yes uh i also feel like i the only thing i could think of with uh the guy who played Dolph dante basco is is obviously rufio from hook mm-hmm. <laughs> so i i made that association um so at this point, the True Direction kids are encouraged to rebel against Mary by two former students, XX Gays, Larry and Lloyd, <laughs> played by <laughs> played by Richard Mall and Wesley Mann. I want to um, just point out how much you just laughed, Kenny, and you had the audacity to say this wasn't a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just laughing, like retelling this. It's a great movie. And little bits, like, um, yeah, little bits like XX Gay is so funny to me. I mean, I so think, funny. Uh, Ru- RuPaul had a line right in the beginning that I wrote down, which I love. When he, that, that sets up the whole movie for me. He goes, I myself was once a gay. Now I am an ex-gay. <laughs> <laughs> and that, just, that, that felt, particularly from his mouth, it was like, it, it is like, extremely funny but like it is it's also you know i don't know it it also has this like the only movie that i could think of that felt like the romance was cruel intentions like the okay and and they're they're similar in like everything is so ridiculous and cruel intentions except for the scenes of reese and ryan like together yeah they're those, super earnest those they're scenes. played so earnestly that's right they're playing and the movie doesn't work unless you do it that way yeah, right so there's, it's yeah. a, there is a similarity in terms of structure where you know the 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 kind the 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 brand of absurdity the movie uses is extremely mm-hmm. different but yeah the earnestness at the center um serves to sell the relationship as the one bit of normalcy within this otherwise insane world. And and it also, it, it, it undercuts it a little bit. It rounds the edges off of it a little bit and it makes it, it by comparison, seem yeah. slightly more. So I, I mean, but so Larry and Lloyd take the kids uh, to a local gay bar uh, where Julie bucket. Delpy shows up, which is oh, awesome. Man. Yeah. So hot. Yeah, she's yeah. very yeah. happy. <laughs> Yeah, no, Julie. I, Julie Delpy is the best. Does she have a? Um, I don't think she. It also should line. be said that Richard Mall will like always be bull line. from Night Court. Yeah. Wait, she what? Doesn't, she doesn't have a line. She doesn't. What did you say? Uh, I didn't hear that. From Night Court. Does she have a line? I was going to say know. that bull from Night Court is the guy who play who plays uh, Larry, I believe. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, that's right. Um, 
I don't I, know that Julie Delpy has a line, but does she have a line? Do you think she does? Uh, I don't know if I like invented a line in my fantasies or if it's in the actual film. <laughs> um, fair, yeah, fair I don't know. I don't know if she has a line. Maybe she doesn't. <clears throat> Is Julie Delpy someone who would be considered a gay icon in anyone's opinion? I don't know. Or is he just like uh, a super hot, sexy human being who... I think she's a super hot, sexy human yeah. being. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I'm trying to think of... She hasn't showed up in anything else in 99 for us yet, has she? Am no, I crazy? I don't think she has. She, I'm just looking it's up. an interesting yeah. decision to use her mm-hmm. as the uh, as the vessel of attractiveness within the context of this gay bar that just i don't know it, it it's it no judgment on that that's just an interesting thing um to me particularly you know because <clears throat> it's natasha leone getting kind of pulled into this world and the person she's attracted to is james yeah. dean and not you know yeah, I mean, she's she's not really in anything in 99 except this. And her character's name is Lipstick Lesbian on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, her parents knew. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't like, know. She's also, she's an, I don't think she's seen as, like, the... I mean, I happen to think she's sexy, but, like, she's I don't think she's... Uh, she's not she's not sold in the storyline as someone who's so alluring that she causes any kind of drama. She's sort of, like thrown away by everyone in fact yeah um I, yeah I, I i'm still kind of trying to figure out exactly what purpose she serves but uh you know yeah it's it, it, pretty cool yeah it's interesting I, I don't i don't quite know um when she popped up i was like oh julie delpy's in this and and then they don't really do anything with it um which maybe i, I don't know maybe i mean who, who knows it's hard to say um, but she wasn't big then right was she well i mean she does before sunrise in 95 yeah Yeah. i didn't know it was in 95 but she also i mean i just kind of skimmed through her for her imdb she was in a little bit of a fallow period at that point it felt it felt like she wasn't doing a bunch of stuff um and then in uh in 2004 before sunset comes out and it kind of rejuvenates a little bit off of that but um yeah i don't know um so at this point uh Mary finds out about them going to this gay bar um, and she forces them to picket Larry and Lloyd's house. Um, uh, And then Megan and Graham pretend to be into men at this point, but also sneak away to have sex together. And we have our sort of our, our, their sex scene, which is really beautiful. And really, I I really love the way it was filmed. Um, But I also think it's funny that Clea and Natasha both say that they were such prudes that they didn't like, they didn't want to really do anything. That's why, like, they're fully clothed and it's really just like kissing and what have you. Which I, I actually think- was not out at that point, too. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's. I actually think that the the chasteness of it adds to how genuine and and pretty and beautiful that the, the mm-hmm. sexiness. But um, I also love how Megan uh, loves cheering, and Graham desperately says she wants to see her cheer. Like that. This there's this that. Sorry. that <laughs> that um <laughs> Sorry, guys. uh that there's this sort of this thing about her that's not a secret but that that graham hasn't seen that this sort of like 
talent of hers or this love that she has that Graham really wants to see, which I think well, is. Well, I like that he, she makes fun of it initially and that yes. yeah. um, Megan stands her ground. And I feel like that's the moment of attraction. At least that's how I've always perceived it, is that she totally. sticks up for herself and says, no, like, mm-hmm. don't make fun of cheer. It's actually great. And, like, she sort of is like, I love this thing. Fuck yeah. off. <laughs> um, yeah, no, 100%. And, and I yeah. think that Graham sees that grit and that ability mm-hmm. to stick up for herself, even though she's, like, super femme and all of these things, as the attractive thing, in a way. No, I, I totally yeah. agree. And I think that that actually um, speaks to sort of this – yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to mention was that um, the reason that Graham is uh, – acting straight is because that's the way out of there you know she's clearly deduced that you know that that there's a way to get out of true directions and that's by passing and it really kind of contributes this this notion that i think what society would prefer from these people is is for them to pass as straight as Mm -hmm. opposed to live their true lives and be gay and that's kind of the, you know, the, the insidious underbelly of these programs. Yeah. And, I mean, there's so much insidious underbelly. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, <laughs> it's all insidious underbelly. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> It's also, I mean, this also kind of feeds into where we're at sort of in the plot, which is that Megan at this point has shown, you know, is unrepentant, is, is owning her, her sexual identity. Um, and because of that, she's shown the door. So this idea that it's sort of, you know, flipping or turning this on its head a little bit, that the character that was so sort of that that owned her her identity up top is now, you know, hiding it, for lack of a better way of putting it, and pretending to be straight in order to get out of there. I also think there's this, yeah, there's that sort of point at privilege, too, mm-hmm. and, and like how so many rich kids will not come out because they right. have these huge trust funds and there's so much more for that. They perceive there's more to lose there. Right. And that is something that I have seen so much um, that like rich kids who are very codependent on their parents will not come out and go to these conversion care therapy camps and try to, as you say, pass because uh, they, they're so attached to their privilege. Do you think that's true today still? Uh, yeah, I personally yeah. know someone who's like, a, yeah, a tragic. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so at, at this point, Megan uh, leaves True Direction. She's homeless. She stays with Larry and Lloyd, the XX gays. Um, and Graham, afraid to defy her father, remains at the camp. Um Basically, Megan and Dolph, who are living with Larry and Lloyd, plan to win Graham and Clay- uh, win back Graham and Clayton. And now we have uh, step five, which is basically Mary makes Graham make out with Rock uh, as a step five simulating heterosexual intercourse. Yeah, can we talk about that? Yeah, and how yeah. they're wearing these like unitards of Adam and Eve, and it's yeah. just like peak camp satire i love that scene i like was rolling like i think i fell out of my chair laughing and just like how because it just like points to the absurdity of like heteronormative 
sort of gender identity and how you're supposed to to do it all. And like they're wearing these flesh colored unitards with like like felt fig leaves on the genitalia. It's it's so prude, but also sexual in this like weird Mm -hmm. Victorian way. Totally. There's this weird like box, I think, in like heteronormative society, particularly when it comes to the education of children. That Mm -hmm. is all the sex stuff. Sure. Right? And they keep it all in there for most of your childhood and adolescence. Like, we're not going to tell you about this sex stuff. That's why R-rated movies, you know, that's why movies with sex, sexual content are R, but movies with, you know, people getting, you know, spears to the face are PG-13. For instance, I, I love the idea that, like, they open this box when there's an emergency. You know, <laughs> like great glass in case of emergency. Like we are losing these people. Show them through the sex shit. See, <laughs> like that will get them back if we show yes. them the sex yeah. shit. So, and this is yeah. what they got for them. They got unitards yeah. with fig leaves <laughs> and simulated sex. But um, it's also and- so neutered. Like it's yeah. so like. Antisexual. Yeah. Like ultimately they don't know shit. Because they were raised in the same society that kept all the sex shit in a box. So they don't know anything, you know? It's amazing. It's great. It's amazing. It's so funny. Uh, so then Megan and Dolph infiltrate True, True Direction's graduation ceremony where Dolph easily coaxes Clayton away. Uh, and Megan basically tries to get Graham to join as well, but Graham nervously declines. And then Megan performs a cheer for Graham and tells her that she loves her and finally winning Graham over. The cheer is so lovely. It is um, so lovely. So it's one of my favorite moments in cinema history. It's so good. And like I was texting Lola as I was watching. As I said, I've never seen the film before. And like it made me cry. Like it's a really, really beautiful moment. It's really, really touching. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they drive off together uh, with Dolph and Clayton up. in the back yeah. of a pickup. Yeah. And the final scene is is Megan's parents attending a, a P-Flag uh, meeting to come to terms with their daughter's homosexuality. And even in that last moment, the dad is there for it, but the mom is embarrassed. And I thought that was such a... Like, I love that she just commits yeah. to the murkiness yeah. of it, like, mm-hmm. from beginning to end. It was just... I thought that was such a great choice. It's a great, it's a great button uh, for the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's a great movie. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and, and do my rating. As I said, I hadn't seen it in '99, so this is really just this time. Uh, before the podcast, I probably would have given it a, a like a '79 or an '80, and now I think I'm at like an '84 or an '85. Like, I, I really just think it's a. Um, it's a really special movie, and and I, and I want to just sort of uh, kind of jump back for a quick second and just say, you know, looking at that Rotten Tomatoes scores, I think a lot of it really has to do with something you said, Kenny, and, and, and obviously you said too, Lola, which is because this film does not fit in a box, that it is not easily defined, that it goes out of its way to make sure that it cannot be defined is part of the reason I think that this film didn't hit with critics. I think they just needed this film to to clearly define itself, which it was going out of its way not to do. And I think the critics, because of that, were like, well, I don't know what this is. And it's some, you know, weird little indie movie. And and I they just didn't take the time 
to really look under the hood and to dig into this movie. And I think it's, I think it's a sign perhaps of, of the times back then, but I'm, I'm so thrilled that this movie has found sort of uh, with some time has found the love that it deserves. You want me to go Lola or do you want to go? Uh, sure. And it's out of a hundred, right? Yeah. Out of 99. Oh, out of 99. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would give it a 99 all, all across, across the board, but this movie really felt like it was made for me. And I am, I'm a hard to define person who doesn't fit in a box and like everything about it just makes me so full of glee. Um, and uh, I think it's just so clever and I think the production design is delightful and yeah, I just I think it's a ninety nine for me. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So this is, and this is your favorite movie of nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, absolutely, hands yeah. down. Do you know what your second favorite movie is? Um, oh <laughs> that one's tough for me. Uh, God, I don't know if I have the answer handy for that. Okay, sorry to disappoint. Next time, next time you're on. Next time, you're on, next, we'll... next time when Not you come back, Angela's ashes. Not Angela's ashes. <laughs> Phil, I was right there with you, buddy. I was an yeah. 80. I gave it yeah. an 80 coming into the podcast. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to bump it up a little bit because I, you know, I think, I, I think, I mean, I know what I was hesitant to go any higher on was that I thought the plotting was a little easy. And there right. were some things that I felt were a little unearned just in terms, just uh, from a plotting and narrative perspective. Um, but like in the, discussion of the movie that didn't seem to matter at all like i don't i don't even remember what those things are at this point obviously it wasn't important um i'm gonna go up to an 85 i think it's uh i, I think it's one of the best movies we covered um just a, just a, a great great movie so uh yeah, yeah it's it. it really is i i you know not to you know not to believe the point but i'll just say you know it's i i i i it annoys me that I that I dismissed it back in the day and that I just didn't really give it its due. Um, and and listen, this has happened with a handful of movies, not just this movie. I mean, Kenny and I have watched movies that we've never seen before uh, for this podcast and been blown away and just assumed that they were uh, that they weren't worth quote unquote worth our time back then, and now are just fucking legitimately fantastic movies. And um, this is one of those moments where I'm just I'm so thrilled that we do the podcast. You know that it's mm-hmm. that it that it forces me to um, to watch movies that I haven't watched before and. You know, this is such a such a gem of a movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. It's it's uh, really really happy that uh, not just that we had you on for it, Lola, obviously, but just to be able to uh, really dig into it. Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a really special movie. I hope that people uh, seek it out. Yeah, watch it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just a queer movie. I think like yeah. that's another thing that I, I'm so happy that people are starting to watch it because I think like it what it says about love is yeah. so universal and what it I think the relationship uh, mm-hmm. ideals of it could really help people so much. You know, 100%. it is a rom com that has such a like a self-love at its core and self-acceptance at its core. And I think regardless of who you are, or what you are, whatever, um, whatever's going on, it, 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 um, it really advocates for a healthy and really fulfilling kind of romance. And I think that's beautiful for anyone. I, uh, I was going to say something similar, which is agreed. I don't think I, 
I knew I would like this movie or I had a strong feeling that I would like this movie because of how much people seem to like this movie. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like when, when people ride so hard for something that, you know, is under the radar, I'm usually very excited to see that movie because of it, you know, hits so hard with some people watching it now to your point, Lola, about it not just being a queer movie, I couldn't imagine anyone not liking it. Like, that's that's really what I feel like right now is, like, I, certainly, like, I couldn't imagine a critic not liking it. But, you know, I would imagine that my parents would like it. I would imagine that people I know from growing up would like it. I think it's, I think it has a lot of, you know, we did election very recently, and I, I think last week, right, Phil? Mm-hmm. And I think that it has a lot of that election DNA, which is there. there is a lot there for people who are, predisposed to like a movie like this and a lot there for people who aren't so it's it's funny you bring up election because i think election's another movie that doesn't fit in a box right part of the reason that that film didn't perhaps connect although critics were obviously far more in love with election uh than this film but again like we're seeing that the, that the movies that tend to stand the test of time at least i feel this way in a lot of ways with the movies of 99 are the ones that don't that are not clearly defined the ones that feel like they're trying to do a bunch of things. And it's a symptom of why I think this year was so special is that there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those so movies true. that are just like, you know, you're, you're being John Malkovich's, your elections, uh, your but I'm a cheerleaders, whatever it is, films that just refuse to conform in some way to a preconceived notion of what you think this movie is going to be. I think that's, that's, it's awesome. That's a really good point, Phil. That's that's why I I think I was left cold by so many of these teen movies, um, because even the ones that are quote unquote good, uh, <laughs> like Ten Things Eight About You, are still very cookie cutter. Um, yeah. And you know, for the most part, if you, if you look at our our top ten or what I would imagine would be like our top twenty five at the end of this, they are all going to be these like you know feathered fish. Yep. Um. With the exception of Notting Hill. (laughs) (laughs) But it was such a transitional year and it was such a murky, strange year that it makes sense that, I mean, that was in the zeitgeist. So it makes sense that that showed up Mm -hmm. in cinema. And and it makes sense that those are the films that have withstood the test of time. Yeah, for um, sure. That we keep returning to with so much enthusiasm. I think it's also, you know... um, a lot of it has to do with the filmmakers that broke through or or the films that they made in this particular year. You know, it is a year that has David Fincher, Paul Thomas Anderson, the Wachowskis, Alexander Payne. These are all filmmakers that, that you know, pride themselves on bucking through any sort of convention. Um, and I think that that's – and Spike Jones, Like, all of these people that are just trying to find – new exciting interesting lanes and and this film absolutely 1000% falls into that category so mm-hmm. and you know well, it, it should it also be said that Jamie Babbitt falls into the category of female filmmakers who made mm-hmm. a brilliant film mm-hmm. and she is like an extremely busy director but she directs mm-hmm. almost TV. so much tv oh, yeah, yeah she directs almost entirely tv and she's probably one of the most in demand TV directors, particularly for mm-hmm. like prestige uh, com- comedic stuff. Yep. Um, but she never really got her, you know, give her $50 million and she would see what she could do type movie. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, which we we've seen over and over and over, over and again over with with movies yeah. made by female directors that we loved. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it happened. You know, it happened with uh, Kimberly Pierce. You know, Kimberly it happened Pierce. with. You know, it's 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 what it, it it's. You know, with all the positive stuff that's come out of this year, and there's a lot of positive stuff, and and obviously we love to highlight those things. We can also see the flip side of it, which is that there's a lot of negatives that came out of this mo- out of this out of this year. And when you look at the amazing films that were made by a slew of filmmakers that did not get another shot coming out of '99, is also a whole other thing. Um, and, so, and so many, so many of them were were marginalized people. It's just yeah. that's mm-hmm. yeah. like you this 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 situation <clears throat> and the uh, the black male directors. Who made great films as well, and I don't think we've done a single movie by a black female director, so I don't even know if there was one. Um, yeah, so. so that's that's yeah. Um, well, Lola, thank you for coming on. Thanks for, for having this, me for this for this film. Um, and we, I hope that you'll come back. You'll come back for something else, right? I'll, I'll send you the list, and you'll come back for something else. Okay. Sure. <laughs> what are we doing next week, Phil? Uh, next week we're doing Flawless. Have you seen Flawless, Lola? I haven't. What is that? Um, it is a movie that I don't think Kenny or I would recommend you watch, but um, it's a movie by Joel Schumacher, his second of 99. Okay. Uh, Robert De Niro and Paul, uh, Paul, Phil Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Phil's can call each other Phil's. Phil's can call <laughs> each other Phil's. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a trans character. Uh, okay. Who, and and De Niro uh, plays a bigoted cop who has a stroke, oh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman has to teach him how to sing to work his way through his oh, breakout rotation. <laughs> that's, um, that's not even the worst. Part. Oh boy! Oh, God. If, if, I, I wish I, I wish you all could see oh. the look of sheer horror as Lola covers her face and is just like, yeah. So that's next week. Um, it's a. Uh, it's listen. The irony uh, of the title is just too much. Oh, it's too much. A lot, the movie is rife with irony. <laughs> I am so hesitant about making any kind of declaration of quality with my titles because I never want it used against me the way you're using flawless. Flawless. The flawless is full of flaws. Yes. Flawless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm. We're gonna have. We're having. Uh, Matthew D'Ambrosio is coming back on. He. He came on for um, uh, teaching Mrs. Tingle back uh, back whenever we did that one, um, and I'm excited to have uh, to have him on to talk about it. It's going to be a very interesting conversation, if nothing else, Kenny. I look forward to us being able to uh, uh, unpack this movie. I guess is the best way to, to describe it. Have you seen Disclosure um, yet on Netflix? I have not, but I want to watch it. I, I recommend it. watching it, especially if you're going to do something about trans identity. I might watch it literally week. right now. We yeah, have I might watch it too. Yeah. It's uh, brilliant. We, yeah. I mean, we're, we've, uh, yes, we, we absolutely want to make sure that, that we, we touch on all this, this movie that one of the, one of the flaws of flawless is, uh, is that it is really all over the map. So it's, it's, it's too packed with ideas, I think, for its own good. Um, so I'm hoping that we can unpack all the things that are uh, not working in this movie. Um, <laughs> but um, but thank you again for coming on. Lola. Thanks we, for having we me. We very much appreciate it. And uh, we can't wait to have you back. Ever. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.